turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 23. Um, the text will say 18 to 56. Um, we're not going to bite off quite such a large text and we'll take it in a couple different sections, but uh, this will really be part one. Uh, the title of the message is the glory of the cross. The glory of the cross. And I was, I was thinking about that in, in preparation. I was thinking of all the symbols for Christians all around the world for the last 2,000 years to lay hold of. The cross is completely, completely otherworldly. Because what does the cross actually symbolize? What do they do to people on a cross? Did they kill him? Yeah. Can you imagine someone, uh, you know, hanging a noose and using that as their symbol for, for their new religion? I mean, why in the world did Christians use the cross as the primary way to express to the world that they identify with the person of Jesus? Have you ever considered that? Well, I simply say that there is a glory in the cross. And so for us, the symbol of Christianity is wrapped up in what Christ accomplished there. And in our text, the next couple of weeks in particular, we'll be focusing there. Um, and if you want to take something from that, um, uh, it's that the crucifixion completes the redemptive mission of the Messiah. The crucifixion completes the redemptive mission of the Messiah. Now, some of you might be thinking, what about the resurrection? Well, the resurrection, which we have seen and we will see in a couple of weeks, is that celebration of Christ's victory over death. But in the cross, there is a consummation or a, or a completion of his redemptive call by God the Father, empowered by the Spirit, of our salvation and so that is the focal point of the message for the next couple of weeks and so you can look at the text and we're going to pick it up in verse 18 of chapter 23 and i'm just going to read through 25 and this is this is Pilate delivering jesus over to be crucified the text says but they all cried out together now remember there have been trials, Pilate and Herod. Now back to Pilate. Pilate says, I don't find any fault in this man. But the crowd has other ideas spurred on by the religious leaders. They all cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Verse 20. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with a loud cries that he should be crucified and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted, and he released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they had asked, but he delivered Jesus, 
over to their will. When we think about the glory of the cross, that symbol that represents all that we put our faith into as Christians, we look to what the author of Hebrews describes in Hebrews 12, 2, to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the what? The cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's why Paul said in Galatians 6, 14, far be it from me to boast in anything except for the what? The cross. The cross of Christ. J.C. Ryle said, if Christ had not gone to the cross and suffered in our stead, the just for the unjust, there would have not been a spark of hope for us. There would have been a mighty gulf between ourselves and God, which no man ever could have passed. There is a glory in the cross and because of the cross, because he accomplished his redemptive mission. And apart from that, Spurgeon once described it as apart from the cross, Christianity is a very, very dark, dark place. So this week and next week, we're going to look first at the release of Barabbas that we just read and the crucifixion of Jesus, then the death of Jesus, and finally the burial of Jesus. But before I do that, I want to make an application, okay? Because um, I don't think that we're going to be able to um, um, get through all of these verses and then apply it at the end. So I'll start with the application. This is the text I used last week, 1 Peter 4, 12 through 14. Beloved, this is the so what part, okay, right up front. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his, what? His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Jesus accomplished on the cross what we couldn't. But as his followers, it's our privilege, according to Peter, to identify with Jesus, not in prosperity, but in suffering. In 1 Peter 4.1, Peter says, Since there Christ suffered in the flesh, arm ourselves with the same way of thinking. Now, again, just as the glory of the cross is completely counterintuitive to the world, this is too, to arm ourselves with this way of thinking that we would take on suffering and count it a privilege. Who thinks like that? Only Christ followers. 1 Peter 4.19, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing what? while doing good. So when people mistreat us, when people judge us, when people misunderstand us, we suffer according to God's will. Now, catch this. Just as God the Father sent Jesus the Son to the cross, he sends his people into the world according to his will. 
And in the midst of identifying with Christ as sufferers with Jesus, we continue to do good. We don't squawk about how life is unfair. We don't yell out, that's not right. That wasn't fair. You're not a nice person. Are you tempted to do that sometimes? Sorry, this is getting real practical really fast because I am. I'm tempted to think that way, and I'm even tempted to speak that way sometimes. But that's not what a follower of Jesus does. 1 Peter 5.10, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, there's no glory in humanity, by the way. The only glory there is is in Christ and in the cross. He will call you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. There's our hope. That's our hope as you labor away for some of us in a land that is far, far away from your home. That is our true hope. If this is your homeland, and you've been rejected by your family, by your neighbors, by your friends, because you're a follower of Jesus. There is glory in that. The glory of the cross. That's the life of a Christian, of every Christian, and it gets very practical. Jesus accomplished once and for all his redemptive mission, even in the release of Barabbas that we just read in verses 18 through 25. We know that Pilate, he caves to the pressure of the religious leader and the frenzy of the mob. It's pretty self-explanatory. Pilate says, I want to release him. I can't find anything that he's done, especially something that he's done that's worthy of death. And what does the mob reply? Crucify him. Crucify him. There is no mob justice. The the mob typically simply creates a frenzy of sinful and depraved behavior. It's something to tuck away in the back of your mind. Just because everyone's saying something, it doesn't make it the truth. Pilate attempts to address the crowd. He tries to coax them into releasing Jesus. When that doesn't seem to work, he simply says, well, perhaps they'll take if I just punish him. I'll punish him some more. I'll scourge him. The crowd says, no way. Release Barabbas. And finally, in verses 22 and 23, Pilate says, I don't know what this man has done. But I'll release him. And I'll pronounce the sentence that you want. Luke... Through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I think with great eternal insight, emphasizes the enormity of the transaction that's taking place here by showing the contrast between Barabbas and Jesus. Here was a stark, literal fulfillment of Isaiah's words in Isaiah 53, 12. He was numbered with transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. You'll remember that back in Luke 22, 37, some of you might remember that text when Jesus was just about to be betrayed. Peter says, what? Master, should we pick up a sword? 
In fact, should we get a whole bunch of swords? And Jesus says, what? What you have is enough. Because this prophecy out of Isaiah 53, 12, it must be fulfilled. How important it is for us when we think about what we perceive as injustice, particularly when it's an an unjust thing that's been done to us or perhaps even a family member, that we keep in mind that ultimately God is the one in control. And it may be that the greatest glory that God can get is not necessarily that the injustice be made right, but that my actions and my attitudes and my word point back to Christ as someone who is at complete peace with what God has ordained. I need to hear that. That is tied up in the gospel because everybody here has or will suffer great injustice in their life. But here we see that it was God's design for redemption, that Jesus would go to the cross, what John Piper calls the greatest unjust act in the history of the world, and I agree. And so too, when we're followers of Jesus, we have the opportunity, no, no, we have the privilege of following Jesus, not to accomplish the redemption of the world, not to save ourselves, but to what? But to glory in the cross. That is mind-blowing, at least to me. It reorients my life. And I have a confession to make. I don't always live what I believe. It's hard. And I struggle mightily because I have a strong sense of what's right and wrong. My suspicion is most of you do too. And none of us like to have something that's wrong done to us or someone that we love. If you're a parent here and something bad happens to one of your kids, you know how you feel. You want to make it right. You want to draw some blood. You want to make sure the person's punished. And there, there is a path to that in the world for sure. But as Christians, our primary response is that even in the face of seeing Barabbas released and to see the lack of spine that both Pilate and Herod demonstrated, we can say there is glory in the cross. Verses 26 to 43, um, I'm going to read this, okay? And don't worry because I'm going to stop in time for us to eat together because next week we'll just pick it up wherever we don't get to, okay? This is Jesus is crucified, okay? Look at verse 26. And as they led him away, they seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. The entire crowd was not screaming for him to be crucified, by the way. It was a very loud minority, I think. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. And for behold, the days are coming when they will say, 
Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Then verse 32, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with them. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, if you remember the King James Golgotha, literally meaning the skull, there, there they crucified him. And the criminals one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, and the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Verse 36. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, saying, If you were the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. And one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, leave out the cross and you have killed the religion of Jesus. Atonement by the blood of Jesus is not an arm of Christian truth. It is the heart of it. So what we see taking place here is the very heart of our faith. It really wasn't a very long walk. So when we pick it up in verse 26, it was no more than a couple hundred meters from where the trials were taking place to this place of the skull or Golgotha. One of the interesting things that we see here is right off the bat in verse 26 is they pick Simon of Cyrene right out of the crowd. And they say, hey, Jesus is too weak to carry his own cross. You're going to need to help him. Now, Simon didn't have anything to do with this story. It said he had just come into the city probably to celebrate Passover, one of the Roman soldiers grabs him and puts the cross on him. But what happens to Simon? Well, if you fast forward to Romans chapter 16, Acts chapter 11, Acts chapter 13, we find that Simon's family comes to Christ and they become leaders in the New Testament church. And I thought to myself this week, how often it is, particularly in the work of missions, that we never know what that one individual that we think might be obscure, sort of out of place, but the impact that their intersection with the gospel might have in their hearts. And I would simply say, we never know when we're going to run into a Simon. And we don't know what he's going to do years down the road. But be encouraged, God does, and take every opportunity. And even when you miss an opportunity, take the next one. What a great example. A great example in the missions endeavor 
In verse 27 and 28, we find that there was a great crowd, particularly a group of women, and they were mourning. They were crying out. Jesus doesn't rebuke them for their mourning because there is a place for mourning, but he repurposes their mourning. And he says, daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me. Instead, weep for what? Weep for yourselves and for your children. And then he goes on. And if you read the, again the rest of the text in verses 29 and forward, he's looking forward to the destruction of Jerusalem. You go back to Luke chapter 21 when Jesus talks at length that what would happen Just a few decades later, when the people would run to the hills, Josephus says nearly a million Jews would lose their lives when Jerusalem was sacked by the Romans. And of course, we look forward to the eschaton, towards the future as well. And he says, don't weep for me. Weep for your countrymen who have rejected me. Mourning and suffering in Israel would be the future. When he says, behold, the days are coming when those who haven't had children will be called blessed. There was nothing greater than for a woman to have a child in first century Palestine. And Jesus says, even the biggest blessing that you can imagine is going to be the biggest curse because you're not even going to be able to take care of your own kids. The gospel that Luke writes would come to fulfillment. And remember, Luke's writing to a Gentile audience. He's writing to his friend in Luke chapter 1. He records the history of the early church in the book of Acts. But as the first Gentile Christians, they read this, they must have thought, wait a minute, Jerusalem was just destroyed. This is what Jesus was speaking of. Surely they would have understand and come to realize that the sovereign God of the Bible, the God of Israel was now their God. And that Jesus was the one that they could put their faith and their trust in him and truly glory in the cross of Christ. After Simon takes the cross, after women's, Jesus speaks to the women, says in verse 32, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to that place called the skull, there they crucified him. The criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, what? What did Jesus say in the midst of that in verse 34? Forgive them for they know not what they do. In the midst of Jesus being crucified, he's not yet speaking to the criminals. Who's he speaking to? He's speaking to those who were crucifying him. He's saying, Father, forgive them. Forgive them for what they are doing. Think of the great injustice that is being done to the Son of God. There simply can't be an injustice that that we can relate to. But if we're supposed to follow Christ, if we're supposed to do as he did, then it would be good to note what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount in Luke 6, 29, to the one who strikes you on the cheek, 
offer what? The other also. Does anyone, does any man do that naturally? I do not. Perhaps you do. I simply don't. What about in Luke 6? He's going to go on later on in the chapter and says, but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the most high for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Now here's Jesus living out what he said. Father, forgive them as he's being crucified with criminals. He's looking out. Forgive them for they know not what they do. Paul fleshes this out in Colossians 3.13, bearing with one another. He's speaking to the church now. These are words from the Holy Spirit to us about how this works out in our own life. Bearing with one another, anyone who has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must, what? Forgive. You recall when the disciples came to Jesus and they said, how often must we forgive this person who continually sins against us? What did Jesus say? Forgive him again and again and again and again. Now, our context here is not lost on me. The context of a country that has suffered for generations under oppression, genocide, And there is nothing, humanly speaking, that could convince any Cambodian who has suffered that to forgive their enemy. That only comes through the glory of the cross. Next week, we're going to pick this up and just we're going to keep running with the text. Here's my question. I'm going to leave with you as the worship team comes up. Who is Jesus to you? And by the way, you can, you can ask this of yourself and you can ask this when you're talking to someone about Jesus. Do you recognize your sin and the penalty that you deserve? Do you believe by faith that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God? Do you embrace the reality of the kingdom beyond this life? Do you put your belief and trust in the grace of God for your salvation. If you are not in Christ, then there is no glory in the cross. It's hideous. It's uncomfortable. It's gross. But if you're in Christ, it's not our glory. It's the glory of Christ that we see in and through him ultimately for God's glory. John Chrysostom, who was a disciple of the apostle John said, by the cross, we know the gravity of sin and the greatness of God's love towards us. Only by the cross. Martin Luther said, no man understands the scriptures unless he be acquainted with the cross. For the Christian, the cross is the beginning It is the glory of Christ. We're going to sing the mighty cross, and I hope that you're encouraged by the truth here. If you are not in Jesus today, confess him. No salvation. He is our only hope.